How's it going? It's good to see all of you. Um, hey, can I just do something real quick? There are a group of guys that got up at 5.30 this morning to be here by 6 to set all of this up in like 30 degrees of weather. Can we say thank you to those guys? Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hey, I do want to tell you a story of, uh, it's kind of embarrassing, but I've only gotten one black eye in my whole life, and I gave it to myself. Um, it's, it's true. I was 17. I was playing in a band, and um, it was uh, a quote-unquote school night. It was a Thursday night, but there was, I don't know, probably like a thousand people that had shown up to see our band, and um, they had a, this drum riser, and so I decided that it just made sense for me to jump on the, climb on the drum riser and jump off. Uh, towards the end of our set, and so I jumped off, kind of pulled like one of these with my guitar, and uh, and I got, and I kind of like, I had a weird thing happen to my strap, it clipped onto my shirt, and so when I came down, I came down, the guitar came up, and it whacked me right in the head, um, which is not part of the plan, and um, so anyway, the next morning I woke up, and I had this black eye um, on on my face, and I'm thinking like, I've got to be at school in well, like 30 minutes or 40 minutes, uh, what am I going to do? And so uh, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, but I had to cover it up somehow. So I actually went into my mom's uh, bathroom in, in our house, and I got this stuff called cover-up, right? You can kind of see where this is all going. So I get this cover-up, and I, uh, you know, this is my first time wearing makeup. And uh, so I just kind of gooped some on my hand and smeared it all over my face. Um, I probably looked like a member of KISS. But either way, I just kind of smeared it on my face, as best I could and tried to make it look as natural as possible because that's what it was supposed to do. Um, so I walk into my, my first period class because um, I'm still in high school at the time, even though I'm in this band that's like on the verge of a record deal. And so I'm, I'm, I walk into class and I mean, people are giving me funny looks, which isn't really that odd because usually, um, you know, if we played a show like on a Thursday night or something, I'd come in the next day at school and I'd look like a zombie because I'd only gotten like two, three hours of sleep. And because uh, seven o'clock is way too early to start school. And uh, so nonetheless, I walk in and I sit down and people are giving me these funny looks. And uh, this guy who sat in front of me in class, um, he turns to me, he turns around and he says, I only want to know two things. He says, number one, um, how'd you get the black eye? Number two, why are you wearing makeup? Um, and uh, so I said, um, I said, do you want to know the truth? And he said, yes. And I said, well. The truth is, the truth is someone tried to break into my house last night and I killed him with my bare hands. So why don't you turn around and shut up? Um, and, uh, and that was that and we never spoke again. Um, now, here's the weird thing. And this is the kind of I learned this lesson at 17 and hopefully I'll be able to share it well with you this morning. And that is what I learned is this is that about cover ups is that they never seem to work. You see, cover ups sometimes when we try to cover things up, they work for a season but then the truth eventually comes out, and because we've tried to cover it up, it makes things even worse. Uh, and all of us try to cover up different things in different ways. Uh, if you came through the holidays and maybe you put on a little extra, you know, a couple extra pounds, you know, because of the very cold Florida winters, um, you just, you know, we're, we're doing that like much like what a bear does. Uh, you know, he puts on the weight for hibernation. Uh, maybe you put on a couple extra pounds. So here's what we do when we go out. We say, I put on a couple extra pounds. Let me wear all black. Uh, because it just makes sense to do, because the Johnny Cash look is coming back in. So I will, uh, how many of you actually, John, who in the world is John? Some of you don't even know who Johnny Cash is. The first service, which tends to be a little bit um, not as young as this service, um, they, they, like, they all laughed at that. Like, yeah, Johnny Cash, that's funny, he wore all black. And then this group's like, Johnny, Johnny who's that? Johnny Quest? Who is that? Um, well, anyway, uh, he's this guy who wore all black. Not, anyway, that's not to derail me. Um, but the thing is this, and the reason that we do it, now the thing about wearing all black is that we all know that we do it. And we think that it makes us feel better because it's going to cover, um, it, it'll cover everything up because dressing like a ninja just is always going to come back into style. Um, so, but nonetheless, here's the thing that happens is that um, on a maybe more serious front, if, if you know someone or you have, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, abused drugs or alcohol, we'll try to cover it up. You know, you have a little too much to drink, and then here's what we'll do. We'll pop a couple of Tic Tacs or mints, hoping that that will cover up a, a, a different scent. If we're abusing, you know, a, 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 some illegal substance, we'll try to create some excuses to do what? To cover up that, it is, that which it is that we're doing. Maybe you have a hurt, and you're trying to cover up the hurt that you have. Here's what we'll do. We'll cover it up with anger. 
We'll cover it up with apathy, saying that we don't care. When really all that does is make the hurt even deeper and make it hurt even more. And then here's what we do sometimes. Sometimes we try to cover up things from God. We try to cover up sin. We try to cover up attitudes or actions that we know God doesn't approve of, all the while thinking that God doesn't see. It's like this couple that I know, um, they, were, they were an older couple, but they had this picture of Jesus, like, a, you know, like an old school t- framed picture of Jesus in their living room. And every time this couple fought, they turned the picture of Jesus around. Like, I'm sorry, Jesus, we don't want you to see this. We'll let you stop looking at the wall once we're done. And, uh, and, and that, that, that's what they did. And, and all the while, here's what we think, is that God doesn't see. Uh, let me show you the first cover up in the Bible in the book of Genesis chapter 3. It says this, it says, uh, Then the man and his wife heard the, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now here's the thing that's so interesting to me. Where did this? Did Adam and his wife, did they really think that hiding behind a tree... That somehow God was not going to see. Like, where are those guys? Well, I see the, there's those people behind. That can't be them. Who? I mean, I just, somehow this is going to be like, you know, it's going to be like kryptonite to God. Like, you just can't see past it. And so then, because God calls to them, where are you? But why is God calling, where are you, if he actually knows where they are? He's calling, where are you, when he knows where they are. Because what he wants to do is give Adam the opportunity to come out. Instead of trying to cover up, he's giving Adam the opportunity to come clean as to what it is that's, that's happening. Now, listen, and this is the reason why we cover up, and this is really, really, really important for us. The reason that we cover up is because this is what we believe. We believe in some way that living a lie is better than facing the truth. It's not true, and when we say it, it doesn't actually make sense. But the reason that we cover up is because we'd rather feel like covering up a lie makes a little more sense and would be better than facing the truth. King David, um, if you're not familiar with the story, just jot this down in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Uh, King David has an affair. And King David um, decides that he's going to cover that up. And through this whole, uh, through lies, through murder, all of this, he covers it all up. And, and, and here's what happens. As serious as that is, he covers all of it up, but then he finally comes clean, confesses, and tries to make some kind of restitution based on what has happened. And here's what happens. This is what David has to say in Psalm 32 afterwards. It's in your notes. It says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Selah. Now, Selah is a Hebrew word that means pause and reflect on that. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Before David confesses, when he covers up, thinking that that's better. Here's what David experiences. He experiences the, the hand of God just like weighing on him. He feels the guilt like holding him down. And then finally he confesses and then he feels the weight lift and he starts experiencing the love, grace and mercy of God in his life. You see, the story that we're going to look at in the book of Esther, and, and if you're not aware, last week we started a series called uh, Engage, Unleash the Power of Now. And as and as we did, here, here's what's happening. We're, we're, we're looking at this ancient story that, has so much, that we have so much to learn from. But in this part of our story, in chapter 2, everybody's trying to cover something up. And the funny part about it is, is that if you've read the story, then you know. If you haven't read the story, then you're going to find out. Is that everything that they try to cover up eventually is revealed. But... And, and, and it's such a perfect illustration for us when we try to deal with the stuff that we're trying to cover up. And if we get nothing else out of the message today, I want you to get this one phrase that I think is so important. And that is that, listen, we are better off dealing with the truth than we are living a lie. We're always better off dealing with the truth than we are living a lie because the truth always comes out. 
We're going to start in chapter 2 of Esther, so I hope you have the notes that we gave you, your pen and your Bible in chapter 2 of Esther. We're going to start in verse 1. Here we go. It says, And after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what he had decreed against her. And then the king's servants who attended him said, Let uh, let beautiful young virgins be brought or be sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters un- under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let the beauty preparations be given to them. And then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti, and this thing please the king, and he did so. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's two questions that I want us to answer this morning that the people in our story have to answer, but what we have to answer as well. The first one is this. The first one is, am I covering up my faults? Am I covering up my faults? Because I want you to know something that it's just, it seems like it's just human nature for us to try to cover up our faults as opposed to come to God um, and, and come clean. When my daughter was 18 months old, which is about a year and a half ago, she's turning three at the end of this month. But when she was 18 months old, um, I got asked to speak at a thing in Phoenix. And so um, I, we flew out there and, and they put us up in a pretty nice, uh, a pretty nice hotel. Uh, and so we explained to Mia, like, listen, we're going to this hotel. It's like way nicer than what you're used to staying in uh, when, when we go. And so you got to like really be responsible. And I'm trying to explain this in 18 month old language. And I'm like, so when you color, only color on paper. You know, there's no markers. Only You're going to color use crayons only on paper. So we're trying to explain this to her. So we're there, and we were there the first day, and this is the, the first evening that we were there. My daughter is, uh, is coloring, and she gets really excited about, about crayons and coloring even to this day. And we go into the, room, into like the living room where, where, um, where we were in this, in this hotel, and, um, and she has now, it's like cream-colored carpet, and she has taken this green crayon and colored all over this uh, this carpet. And now Carrie and I are like ready to have a heart attack. That that you know where this really nice place and she's colored all over the carpet. And Carrie just instinctively says, "Mia, did you color on the carpet?" And my daughter, 18 months old, steps on where the carpet is, looks at us bold faced, and says, "No, mommy." And I'm thinking to myself, like, first of all, you're like two feet tall. And you can barely cover this area. And, and it's so amazing to me that the fir- that like from, from birth, right, it's just so natural for us to seek to cover up. That's exactly what Ahasuerus is doing. He's trying to cover up what he had done to Vashti because now, because there's no queen, people are, the word is getting out. The word's getting out that Vashti was no longer allowed to be queen, but the word is also getting out as to what really happened, that not only did they remove her crown, but they removed her head. I mean, she was killed for disobeying the king. And that's, oh, hey, what's going on with the king? You know, there's no queen. Oh, that's right. He killed the queen. Why did he kill the queen? Oh, remember, they were having that big drunken party that went on for six months. And he told the queen to come out naked. If you missed last week, you're like, what? Read chapter one. And then he's like, he's having the drunken party. And he tells his queen to come out wearing the crown, but nothing else. And so uh, when she says no, he decides to kill her. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. Rule number one, don't get invited to the party uh, that the king's throwing or you may die. Uh, and so what he's trying to do is instead of coming out and saying, hey, you know, the Vashti thing, I was wrong. Instead of that, he says, how about we just get another queen? And then when somebody says, you know, as time goes on, people forget about things. That's, you know, stats get a little fuzzy and they say, well, what happened to the queen? Oh, there's a queen. And then, oh, that doesn't happen to the queen. I don't know. There is one there. So oh, I guess I guess I was wrong. And so instead of doing that, Instead of coming clean, he just tries to cover up the fact of what he did. And I want to tell you something, is that we do the same thing. Instead of, cover, instead of coming clean about our faults, we try to cover up our faults, and it just creates more problems. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, it's in your notes, it says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. I learned this verse a couple of uh, a couple years ago, my daughter was about 10 months old, and I was doing some teaching in Tampa. And I decided to, uh, you know, every time, whenever I can, if I'm doing teaching somewhere, I'll try to take my family with me. And so um, in this trip, I took my wife and my daughter, who was about 9 or 10 months old. So we went to Tampa. I taught the thing I needed to teach, and then we were driving home. Well, when my daughter 
was younger, um, when she was like under a year old, she had this thing that she didn't like dry, like she didn't like it being in the car seat at night. And so, and the way that she expressed her displeasure was by screaming at the top of her lungs. And, uh, and so whenever we were somewhere and it was nighttime, we put her in the car, she would scream from the moment she got in the car until we got home. And so that kind of became the rule. We will only drive during the day or you will go insane uh, because hearing a kid scream. Well, um, we had to stop for a couple of things on the way home and it's and the sun went down and we're still driving home from Tampa and we're on alligator. You know, we're like on 75 turning into alligator alley and now it's night. And for the imagine an entire trip through alligator alley, you know, the whatever hour, hour and 15 minutes that it is um, with a 10 month old screaming at the top of her lungs. Now, just imagine that. First of all, that's like the makings of a horror movie right there. Um, but here's the thing that happens. And I had this thing. I don't know what it was. The louder my daughter would scream, the faster I would drive. And so like, ah, that's the pedal. I was just I'm flooring it. And so, um, so I'm flooring it because I can't take listening to this girl scream any longer. So I look and I realize that I'm going more than 100 miles an hour on Alligator Alley at night with my wife and my 10-month-old, and you're like, hey, that's not wise. Well, you weren't in the car. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm really going, I'm going crazy as she's screaming bloody murder uh, in, 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 in the backseat of our car. And uh, you know when you get to that spot in Alligator Alley where you start to see the lights of civilization? And then there's like, oh, it says like, you know, entering Broward County. But it's so deceiving because it says entering Broward County, but you still got like another like 20 minutes to go before you get like, civilization, or as we like to call it, Weston. Um, and so, you're, you know, you're, you're still like a ways away. And so you're, you're driving, you're driving, you're driving. Well, it's right around there that, you know, because the thing, funny thing that happens when you're going 100 miles an hour in the alley is that law enforcement tends to notice that. Um, and so I'm driving that fast, and then the lights come on, and I get pulled over. And, um, you know, so then the cop comes over, and the cop always asks the same question. You know, they ask, uh, do you know why I pulled you over? And so, you know, what am I going to say? I'm a pastor. You know, I'm a Christian. And so he says, you know, I pulled you over. And I said, no, officer, I have no idea. Um, (laughs) I really did say that. Um, And so because if I said that I didn't, I would compound one lie with another. And uh, so I I said, no, officer, I don't. And then he says this. He goes, really? And I said, um, and he could hear my daughter screaming, you know, and, and I just said, I said, officer, listen. Um, I'm on my way home. Uh, my daughter is screaming. And I said, listen, and she is not going to stop screaming until I get home. I have to get home. And I mean, I give the, the cop like a five minute monologue about why I have to get home. And I said, I was speeding. I'm wrong. I will accept whatever consequence you feel is necessary. But I have to get home or I'm going to go crazy. Well, he hears my daughter screaming and he says, you know, let me see your uh, license and registration. And then he takes it and he goes back to his car. There's several cops that come to church here and I need to ask them, like, what in the world do you do back there? You know, because, you know, they take your your uh, driver's the license and registration and then they're back there for a couple of minutes. I'm telling you, I think these guys like call their wife, their friends like, hey, what's up? What are you doing? Oh, no, I'm doing that thing where they, I take the license and registration and pretend like I'm doing something. Uh, so what, what do you want for dinner? Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Oh, listen, I got to go back. All right, I'll call you. I'll call you. When I stop somebody else, I'll call you back. All right, bye. Um, and, so, and so what happens is this, is that he comes back and he gives me my stuff. And I mean, you know, and then he says, um, and he says this to me and he says, uh, he says, Mr. Frank was, um, slow down and go home. I said, thank you, sir. And thank you, Jesus. Uh, and, you know, his. And, and, and here's, I'm telling you, I learned that, that, that thing. And it's the weirdest thing is that if, if, you know, when you try to hide it, you, you always get busted. But when, instead, the, the, well, that, that passage says, you know, it says the person who covers the sin won't prosper, but the person who confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. I'm telling you, I learned it that day. And the same thing happens in your life and in mine, uh, you know, in, in our lives when we're confronted with our faults. We can either try to cover it up or we can be the one to say, hey, you know what? I'm just letting you know that I messed up. Um, when you're at work and you mess up, you have this opportunity that you can either try to cover it up, which always gets found out, or you can go into your boss and say, hey, I just want you to know something happened and it was me. 
and I'm really sorry about it, as opposed to them finding out from somebody else that it happened and then you tried to cover it up. Same thing that happens at home. You mess up and you can either tell your spouse what happened or they can find out and then get mad that it happened and that you didn't tell them. And so, and the same thing is true in our relationship with God. We can either tell God that, God, this is what happened. Not that he doesn't know anyway. Same deal as Adam in the garden. Adam, where are you? And so I can either say, God, this is the deal, and I'm sorry, and I'm trying. I want you to help me to to change. Uh, We can either do that, or we can try to cover it up and realize that it's the person who covers his sins that doesn't prosper, but it's the person who confesses and forsakes it that receives mercy. The Bible tells us this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have the option. We're either going to cover our sins or we can confess them and experience the mercy and grace of God. But it's not just about covering your faults. There's something else that I want to show you in these two questions. I want you to look at verse 5. And and what I want to do is actually read this whole section so you can see exactly what's happening here. Look at verse 5. It says, In Shushan the citadel there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. And Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hasada, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful, and when her mother and father died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so it was when the king's command and decree was heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel, also uh, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther was also taken into the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian uh, of the women. Now the young, women, the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. And so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women." Esther had not, this is key, Esther had not revealed her people nor family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai placed in front of the court, uh, of the women's quarters, to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Verse 12, it says, and Each young woman's turn came uh, to come in and see King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months' preparation according to the regulations for the women, for thus were the, prep- the days of the preparation apportioned. Six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparations for the young women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women and to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. This is key. This is extremely key right here, this sentence. It says she would not go into the king unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. That little phrase is going to be critical for us when we, in two weeks when we talk about chapter 4. It says, and when the turn came for Esther, this is verse 15, the daughter of Abihail, uh, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. And so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other young women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. And so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king made a great feast, the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, I know it's a long section to read, but I wanted to give you the whole picture as to what was happening. And if the first question is, if the question is, am I covering up my faults? The second one I want to ask is this, is am I covering up my faith? 
Am I covering up my faith? Now, let me explain why I'm saying that. Because what we read in verse 11 was that Esther had not revealed her, her family or her people, meaning she had not revealed to the king or to the guy who, Haggai who was in charge of all the young women. He had not, she had not revealed to them that she was Jewish. Why? Because for them to reveal that she was Jewish involves observing Sabbath. It also involves observing certain dietary laws. And so she's not telling anybody anything. She's just going with the flow. Now, this is why it's important to note, note this. And in fact, what I want to do is contrast that with another story in the Old Testament that happens about 100 years before the one that we're reading now. Um, we read about Mordecai, right? And that he, he's an ancestor of a guy by the name of Kish. And Kish, it says, was carried away when Nebuchadnezzar carried away Jeconiah, who was the king at that time of Israel, um, and he carried them away to Babylon. Well, in that group was a guy by the name of Daniel. And Daniel, uh, when he's there, they're, tr- they're training all these young men that they think have potential to serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. But what Daniel does, and I want to read this to you, this is in Daniel chapter 1. I want you to notice the contrast between what's happening with Esther and what happens with Daniel. And here's what it says. It says in verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, but he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Daniel said, then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now, I want you to see the contrast. Daniel shows up and he says, well, we're going to train you and you're going to eat all the royal food. And Daniel lifts up his hand. He says, hey, I understand that, but I have a problem. And they say, what's the problem? The problem is I'm Jewish. And I need to keep kosher. And there's a lot of stuff that you guys eat in here that according to God, I'm not allowed to eat. And he says, well, can we do this? Just let me eat only vegetables, me and my three buddies here. And if we're and test us, if we look better, then we'll continue. But if we look worse, then maybe we'll have to figure something else out. And they do the test as we read. And Daniel and his buddies looked better than the other guys who had eaten all of the king's delicacies. And so but in the story of Esther that we read previously, here's what we find. Mordecai. Esther's cousin tells Esther, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. Don't tell anyone who your family is. Don't tell anyone who your people are. Well, why is that? Because she's trying to cover up her faith because her idea is is that if I tell them, that might actually be a problem for me. Now, before we're a little bit too hard on on Esther, uh, she's going to turn this whole thing around uh, by the time we get to chapter 4. But here's the deal. The question is, Are we covering up our faith because there's a certain lifestyle that we want to live and certain people that we want to live that lifestyle with? And and you say, because sometimes the way she covers up her faith is the same way that we will cover up our faith. Well, how do we do that? I'm going to actually give you four ways that we cover up our faith. Uh, Here's number one, if you're taking notes. Number one is, why do we cover up our faith? Number one, to advance my career. To advance my career. With Esther, listen, queen is a pretty prestigious title. Now, we don't live in a monarchy, so it's very hard for us to really fathom like what a queen is. But, I mean, she's like really in charge, and there's nobody with the exception of the king that's going to question what she wants. And so she's willing to compromise to gain a title or a position that she wants. And this is the thing that I see happen uh, so often, is that a guy or a girl will go in to, for a position, and this is what they'll ask. They'll ask, we'll, um, well, so you, you, want, you want the job. Okay, now are you willing to work weekends? Are you willing to work on Sunday? Oh, yeah, that's not a problem for me. Knowing that to say yes to that is to sacrifice uh, being at church with your family and growing together in, in God's Word. Well, you know, if I do that, it's a sacrifice, but only for a season of time. Let me tell you how it works. And, and those of you that have been in this situation, um, I'm going to tell you this, and you're like, man, that's exactly how it went down. And the reason is this is because I've seen this happen over and over and over again. The guy that agrees and he says, no, hey, I'll work Sundays. It's no problem. Um, and then and I'll do that. You see, and, and, and this is the this is the, the, the thought isn't a terrible one. The thought is I'll do it now, get my foot in the door. And then once I get a little bit of seniority, then I'll ask for Sundays off. 
so I can be there, be at church with my family. And then the new guys will then take Sunday and, and I'll have, you know, because I'll, I'll be have seniority over them. But this, that's not really the way that it works. The way that it works is, is that a supervisor wants that position filled and wants that time covered. And so if you've got somebody that's doing it and then they hire, they go to hire somebody else and they say, hey, are you willing to work on Sunday? No, that's the time that I spend with my family and I, I go to church. And so that's the day that I really devote uh, to God. And so I'm not available on Sundays, and I hope that that's not a, that's not a problem. But my hope is, is that you'd want someone who has um, that kind of uh, moral and ethical undergirding that you'd probably want that kind of person working for you. And you know what that person's going to say? Yeah, you're right. But you know, it's okay, because I've already got a guy working on Sunday, and so I'll just keep him working on Sunday, and then you, um, now even though you're new, I'll, I'll give you Sunday off. And it's like, and it happened. This is the way it goes, and it happens over and over and over again. And so we think that the compromise is actually going to pay off, and it never does. And, and now it's like years go by, and we're thinking, well, now I'm stuck. Well, the reason that we're stuck is because we compromise, and the only way that we're going to get out of it is to the event is to say, hey, you know what? I did it, and I made a mistake, but now I need to rectify this mistake. And it's going to take probably having a conversation that you may not want to have with a supervisor to say, I need to fix this problem but the reason that we do this is because we forget where promotion actually comes from in your notes is a passage from psalm 75 it says as it says for promotion comes not from the east nor from the west nor from the south but god is the judge and he sets he puts down one and sets up another you see the bible tells us in those passages that promotion comes from the lord and that the promise is that, as Jesus would say in uh, Mark, uh, in, pardon me, in Matthew chapter six, is that if I actually put God's kingdom first, that all these other things, including career and including promotions, will be added unto me. You see, Esther is not really faring so well, even though it's like, well, how is she a hero of the Bible if she's compromising? Well, it's because she's going to turn this thing around when we get to chapter four, and she's going to risk. The title, the promotion, the career, the status. She's going to risk all of that to do the right thing when she decides that obeying God is more important than a title. And I want to tell you something. And if we're stuck in that situation, the way to do it is to do what Esther is going to do. And that is to turn around and say, I've got to fix what I've done wrong. And instead of trying to cover it up and just call it circumstance, instead, I'm going to come clean about it and say, you know what? I made a mistake and I need to rectify that mistake. That's one way we cover up is um, to advance my career. Here's the second one is to have a relationship is to have a relationship. I want you to notice something if you haven't. Have you noticed this? And maybe you say, hey, this sounds familiar. You've got a guy and he wants to find someone to love. He wants a queen. And so they now get all of these women and move them into a house where they're doing all the beauty preparations. And then he's going to pick one. I mean, this is like the bachelor Old Testament edition. Okay. This is like Rock of Love with King Ahasuerus, all right? And so this is what it is. All these women moving into the house, all trying to win the affection of one man. I mean, this is like, you know, you say, that's such an interest, that's such a new idea. Now, the Bible covered that a long time ago. Um, now, the thing is this. Being the queen meant that you were married to the most powerful man in the world at that time. And listen, that is a pretty big deal. But Esther doesn't even take into consideration that this is a man who is not even of the same faith that she is he worships other gods than she does and the bible says that we're not she doesn't even take it's absent as to whether she even takes that into consideration what we are told in verse 9 is that what she does is that it not only does she prepare in verse 9 it says that she prepares even more than every all of the other women so hey great job in over preparing bad job in what you're over preparing for and so she compromises for the sake of this relationship and this is the thing that happens so often. And this happens, for, and especially for those of us that are Christians, um, so many times Christians are susceptible to this, especially if we want to find that someone that we're going to spend the rest of our lives with. You know, we'll, we'll meet, you know, a guy will, will meet a girl or a girl will meet a guy, whatever, and they'll start dating and you're, you're a Christian and, and they're not. And then what we'll do is we'll start dating them and then start praying like crazy, oh God, make them a Christian. And so we get involved. And so what are you doing? All oh, missionary dating. And I'm just praying that, you know, I'm like a missionary in the dating field, trying to convert everyone that I go out on a date with. Um, and, 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 and this is what we do, thinking, right, that it's, it's going to, that, this is act, that starting wrong is going to make this right. Now, listen, this is the thing that's, 
that's really important, really important for us to know, is that this doesn't ever end well. Now, and you can feel free to talk to anybody who's been involved in it at any time in the course of their life, and it never ends well. And the thing, this is how we start, and we say, well, I, 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 I really like that person, and I'd like to date them, but then they're not a Christian, but I can start dating them and just pray that they become, God, please save them, please make them a Christian, and then they will be a really hot Christian that I can date. Because sometimes I see people who are already Christians, and they're not really all that good looking, but this person is really good looking, and man, if they got, you know, came to know Jesus, they'd be the whole package. And, uh, and, and that's kind of what I'm looking for. And listen, and so we compromise for the sake of a relationship. And the reason that we do that is because we haven't thought it all the way through. And here, here's the way that it works. Um, you know, we, we compromise on our faith to be with someone hoping that they will change. And you know this to be true. Um, if you've come to know Jesus and you say, now tell me what your life was like before you came to know Jesus and after. You say, well, I'm completely different than I was before. I mean, I may look the same, but I'm totally different than I was. So basically, you start dating someone and you're like, I'm dating you and praying that God comes into your life and completely alters everything about you. So I'm dating you, but I want you to become someone else. And it's like, even though the, the intention is good that we want God to begin to work in their lives, it, it, it's really an unfair expectation that we're putting on them. And at the same time, um, the fact that we're compromising to be with them, I mean, do we want, you know, should they want to be with someone who comp- compromises something that should be at the very core of their being? No, I mean, we should be repulsed by someone who's willing to compromise who they are for the sake of, 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 of a relationship. That's why the Bible tells us, and I put it in your notes in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? You see, we compromise. And let me just tell you the, the reason why we compromise. And we don't think of it this way because it's kind of a harsh reality to think of it this way. But the reason that we compromise is because we believe that doing things God's way, God's way is not going to turn out the way that we hoped. You see, I, I want to find someone to spend my life with, but if I do it God's way, it's never going to happen. And so I've got to go outside of that to make it, take, to make it happen. And listen, uh, let me just tell you that waiting for God, I'm not going to say that it's easy. Because there are times that in waiting for God and not knowing what His timing is, that, that's hard. And it is. But let me tell you what's harder is making a mistake and ending up with the wrong person and compromising and waking up every morning with guilt and regret knowing that you made that mistake. Listen, waiting for God is hard, but that is harder. That's the second way. Let me give you a third way that we cover up. We cover up our faith to advance my career, to have a relationship. Number three, to participate in sin. Now, here's what I mean by that. By participating in sin. Most of us bend the rules, right? Um, you know, when the speed limit is 65, most people don't go 60, unless you're my dad. Uh, my dad goes, goes 60 because he says that the speed limit is only a suggestion. You are free to go as slow as you want uh, under that, which I suppose is true. Um, but uh, most of us don't take that advice, as good as adv- advice as it is. Most of us, um, it's 65, so what do we go? 70? 72? 73, because we know that a cop's not going to stop us for going five miles over the speed limit, or six, or seven, I mean, ten or more maybe, but anywhere in that, if you're in single digits, you're probably okay, and so that's what we tend to do, right? If we've got to be somewhere by eight, we can get there at 8.10, 8.15, right? Service starts at 11.30, so you get there at 11.40, 11.45, you know, and then you can always blame traffic. Because, you know, it's gridlock at 11 a.m. on Sunday. You know, you can't even move in Miami at 11 a.m. on Sunday. Um, that's why I think it's funny. People say to Mark, uh, Pastor Mark, they say, you know, you guys should do more worship. And he usually tells to them, if you get here at 1130, you'll hear almost half an hour of worship. Like, oh, I get here at 5 to 12 and I only hear half a song. Like, yeah, that's probably the issue. If you get here right on time, you'll hear plenty. Um, so um, just make sure, just, just mentally think the service starts at 11. And you'll be here by 1130. It'll work out. Um, so anyway, but here, I'm telling you, but we learned this at birth that we're just going to like test the limits, right? Um, yesterday, we went to the mall. 
uh, we braved the cold because, man, it's freezing out, right? And, um, and I don't know if you know this, but people, um, they'll get hurt if they go outside in the cold. I don't know if you knew that, but they do. And I, I, I commend all of you for risking your lives to be here. Um, um, but here's what happened. I mean, you would think the, the talk that people have, they're like, you went outside? Do you want to die? You know, I mean, that's like what people, people, I'm talking to people and they're like, you went out? You would think that there's like bullets flying in the streets um, that, based on the fact that it's cold. Like, no, I, I own a coat, you know, and, and besides the fact, I grew up in Boston and they have this white stuff called snow and it's like really cold there. Um, you know, the, you know, what we call this in Boston spring. OK, um, so anyway, stepping off soapbox. Um, so here's here's what happens is that um, we're in the mall because we did have to get some warmer clothes for the kids because these kids are growing uh faster than we expected so we're trying to get some long sleeve shirts and, and that for the kids and um my daughter was picking something up off the floor and you know how clean malls are and um so we're trying to clean her hands and she starts running because she sees a water fountain and uh, you know like one of those things and she cannot pass one of those water fountains without getting there and then asking us for a penny to throw it in i'm ready to start one in my house just to earn some extra money um you know, because I'm telling you, I'd make thousands just based on how much she wants to throw in. Um, and so so she said, so we're telling her, would you stop so we can clean your hands? And uh, and so she had her hands in her mouth, which is just a great thing to do uh, when your hands are dirty. And so Carrie says to her, Mia, take your hands out of your mouth so we can clean your hands. And she goes like this. My hands aren't in my mouth. They're just on my lips. But I can put them in my mouth fast. You know, but she's just like this. And I'm thinking to myself, how many times have I done that? How many times have I done that to God? How many times have we done that where God says this is the line between sin and not sin? And then here's what we do. We just stand right on the line. I'm not sinning. Over there is sin, but I'm right here. I'm right here on the line. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm right, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sinning. I'm not sinning. And so, and, and, and the thing is, and we do this, right? Thinking that somehow um, it's it's okay, but listen, when you live on that line, that's when you get into trouble. Because when you live on that line, all it takes is one little push, and you're over on the other side. And let me tell you how it works. And this could we could do this for any area of life. But let me just let me just use this one. Um, You know, um, this is what uh, this is sometimes what we think. You know, getting drunk, the Bible says, is a sin, right? So that means that I mean I can still go to the clubs with my friends, right? I can just, I'm not over the line. I can just go there and I can drink club soda. So I can write there or I can drink Sprite or Coke and I'm okay. But then, you know, you're there and people are drinking and you say, you know, the Bible says that drunkenness is a sin, not having one drink. So I can have one drink and I'm, I'm okay. That's not actually sin because it's only being drunk that's a sin. So I can have one drink and I'm okay. So then you have one. And then you say, well, I'm here and I'm having a drink and I'm doing okay. But then, you know, based on my height and my weight and according to blood alcohol levels, if I divide that by the rotation of the sun and, and, and the, based on where we are within a full moon. And so I'm actually okay. I could probably have two and still be okay because my blood alcohol will still be below the legal limit and I'm still okay. So I have two, but now I'm like, woo, I'm feeling a little crazy, but I'm still okay. And next thing you know, because you've been dancing on the line so much thinking that it's not that big of a deal. All it took was one little push, one bad choice to get you over the line. And now you wake up and saying, why did I do that? Why did I go there with whom and how did I get here? And all of that happens. Why? Because we start dancing on the line, thinking that we're not going to fall over. Instead, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says this abstain from all appearance of evil. I want you to think about that. It's not just abstain, you know, don't sin, which would be a, you know, a biblical thing. But the Bible tells us one wiser, what the Apostle Paul says. He says, abstain from even the appearance of evil. That is, so when you're going to head over there, if somebody who's not a Christian knows that you are a Christian, and they see you going somewhere, they're going to say, man, is that really the wisest thing for that person? That just would seem like it doesn't really make sense for them to be part of that. So instead, the Bible says this. Maybe instead of dancing on the line, we need to take a couple steps back. So it's not just that we're not sinning, but we don't even have the appearance of it. Let me give you the last one. The last one is to be accepted. To be accepted. Can I, can I just tell you the, the, the harsh reality? Is that if you're a Christian and really living for God, there are going to be some people who hate you. 
Now you say, man, that's a New Year's message I want to hear. Um, but it's true. There are some people that just do not want anything to do with God. And because you have some connection to God, because you're a Christian, and the Bible says the Spirit of God is living in you, they are going to hate you. Because they don't want anything to do with God or anyone who represents Him. The Bible says this in John chapter 15, Jesus' words. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If you're a Christian and you're in the workplace and there's somebody there who just can't stand you because you're a Christian, listen, I want you to know that everything is going according to plan. That there are some people who just aren't going to like you because you're raining on their parade. You ever have this? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, and there's a group of people telling a joke, and you walk up, and then you walk up, and, and everybody stops talking. It's like the Christian walk, you know, I'll tell you the story of what happened with the three guys. One guy walks in with a duck. I'll tell you that, the punchline to that later, because the Christian just walked up. Well, why, why, why do you walk up, and why did everybody stop? Why? Because, and it's not because you've been judgmental, uh, or at least hopefully you haven't. Um, it, what it is is this is simply because of what, you, what and whom you represent that has been problematic. And here's why that is. Here's why that is. Um, I used to live, um, I used to have an apartment before I was married. Me and a buddy, uh, we rented this apartment while I was in college. And um, I would come home from, uh, I would come home either from work or from class at night, and it would be like 10, 10.30. For whatever reason, like all the time when I came home, there was always a bunch of people watching a movie. Um, in, in my living room. And I don't know if you know this, you walk into your house and if it's dark, you just naturally just flip the lights on. Well, I just had this habit of every time I walk in, I'd open the door, I'd flip the lights on and everybody would start screaming and yelling at me. Uh, I'm sorry, I turned the lights on in my own house. Um, you know, so I turned the lights back off. And here's why. is because after a season of time, your lights get used to darkness. And then for someone to just flip the lights on is just too much light for them to handle. And can I just tell you that if somebody is living in darkness and you now as a Christian walk in and they're like, man, I just I can't stand this. Why? Because sometimes the life that you're living is a little too much light for them to handle. And it's not because you've actually done anything wrong. It's because people who want to live in darkness, just the light just drives them crazy. And so here's the temptation that we have. The temptation that we have is to cover up our faith by laughing at the joke, by going along so we can get along. And, I want to, and, and then, because this is our hope, maybe if I do compromise a little, they'll respect me and then I'll be able to talk to them about what God's done in my life. Can I just tell you the, the truth of the matter? The truth of the matter is they won't respect you. Because deep down, this is what even people who are far from God, who will ridicule you for your faith, can I just tell you what their hope is? Their hope is that you will still live for Jesus in this world. Because their goal and desire is to see that it is actually possible. Even though they have no intention of actually living for God at this moment, they want to see if you really will. And when you pass the test and actually do live for Him, because here's the thing, there's an old saying that when you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the one who yells the loudest is the one who got hit. And that sometimes the people who are criticizing you the most about your faith are the ones who, the ones who you think are the farthest away from the kingdom of God are the ones who are actually the closest. And that those people are one crisis, one problem, one circumstance, one difficulty, one trial away from talking to you about this Savior that you have, about this God who's changed your life. But here's what it's going to take. It's going to take a person who is consistent enough and who will not compromise and is going to live for the living God even in conditions that aren't optimal. And if you will, here's what will happen. They will come around. But it's going to take a Christian who is serious and living what he claims to live for. Not just talking about it, but really living it out. And you've heard me say this phrase, and I'll close with this. Um, you've heard me say this phrase in the past. To live for an audience of one. And if you haven't heard, haven't heard me say that, let me just encourage you to learn that phrase. Live for an audience of one. Don't live to please other people, but learn to live to please God. Because that's the only opinion that really matters. This week I got some news. Um, I, I got a text about this, and then I called um, a guy who was um, 
uh, he wasn't a good friend, but he was a, a, a friend. He was a ministry colleague, um, a guy that really loved Jesus with all of his heart. Um, he passed away. Um, he wasn't feeling well on Thursday, and then he uh, he had a stroke, and um, and was uh, and died on on Friday. And so I called his office and spoke to his assistant and um, and talked to her. And um, I had never met her, but she knew who I was. She had heard me speak somewhere, and um, and so I had asked us what happened. And she said, you know, he just um, this didn't feel well on Thursday, and he had a stroke and died on. Uh, on, on Friday morning, um, and so we we talked about that a little bit, and and she said about him what everybody says about him, is that he's a guy that just loved Jesus with all of his heart, and loved people, and um, you know this is a guy that we partnered with in, in in our ministry, and in fact at one time we'd even talked about maybe having him come on staff part time to do counseling, um, you know for us because he's just such a gifted counselor, and um, and so. And the thing that I was thinking about it with, in light of, of this message, which was done at the time, and um, as I started thinking about, you know, right now, right now in his in his life, this guy's in the presence of God, worshiping Jesus. And I want to tell you this: that all of the stuff that we tried to cover up, none of it matters. None of it matters. But all that mattered was living for an audience of one. Because there's this passage in the book of Hebrews in in chapter 4. It says that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And then it says this, that because of that, that it can cut between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And it says that, uh, that's that's Hebrews 4.12, but in 4.13 it says that everything is open and naked before him, before before whom we must give an account. Everything is open. Before him, even the stuff we try to cover up, everything is before him. And can I just tell you something that, um, you know, 100 years from now, as far away as that is, I'm I'm just going to go out on a limb and just say none of us are going to be here 100 years from now. All of us will have moved from this life to the next. And I want to tell you something that what I don't want is to go from this life to the next and be ashamed of covering up my faith and covering up my faults and trying to appear to be something else to other people. Instead, I wanted to do this. I wanted to live for an audience of one. Because when I live for an audience of one, you know what's amazing? When I come to Jesus, and this is true if I'm a Christian, because I've experienced this and I can experience this again. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus and you you can experience this for the first time, is that when we come to Him, it's not that we're giving Him new information. We come to Him and He gives us the opportunity to come clean and then we experience his forgiveness. And then here's what the Bible says. It says that love covers a multitude of sins. So it's when we come to him that he's the one that covers it and takes it away. Not when we try to cover it up, but when the one, the one who actually has the ability to cover it, to change us and turn us into the people that he wants us to be. Instead of covering up your faults, instead of covering up your faith, why not live for an audience of one? Let's pray. God, thank you for that truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that if we live for you, that if we humble ourselves, that you will lift us up in due time. That's what your word says. I pray that you'd fulfill that promise in each of us. I pray that we wouldn't cover up our faults or cover up our faith, but instead that we would live a life that's pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.